We're uh, back in our uh, favourite little epistle, the Colossians. Colossians, and we're nearing the end of chapter 3. Um, and also nearing the end of uh, Paul's application of what he has been uh, describing of the Christian life. And uh, in Colossians chapter 3, we're just going to pick up the verses today from verse 22 and then all the way through to chapter 4 and verse 1. And so let's just read the scriptures together. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. So we're dealing today with the servant and master relationship. But we do so in the context of the ancient world where the the word here for servant is actually a bond slave. A bond slave and indeed some translations use the word slave. And uh, when we approach uh, scripture like this it's very easy to uh, read over it rather hastily because none of us here really understand or have experienced slavery, what slavery really was for the ancient population of Rome. And you just recall where we're up to here in the flow of uh, Paul's letter is that he's dealt with the Christian and Christ as the individual at the beginning of chapter 3. He then moved on to the Christian and the local church and our behaviour in the local church, our behaviour one to another. And then, of course, the Christian and the family in verses 15 to 21. And so you see here he is developing his thoughts now to another uh, very normal domestic relationship in the ancient world, and that was the relationship between master and slave. And it's interesting to note that many of the early church were in fact converts. Uh, Converts were slaves. And approximately most historians put the figure of slaves and slavery somewhere around 40 to 50% of the population of ancient Rome. So about 60 million people, when this letter was written, were actually bond servants in some form or other. And it really was the luck of the draw of whether you had a a good and kind master, somebody who was reasonable, somebody who really took you in as a a family member in a lot of situations, or you had a a terrible uh, experience and a terrible existence uh, as a slave, somebody where you were just treated as a chattel. You were treated as something to be bought and sold, something to be discarded when they were finished with. And Paul is addressing this very large group of people uh, that would have been very prevalent in the ancient world. 
So we're not dealing here with a fringe group. And so when we read these verses together, let's not just skim over them and think that, well, this isn't really for us. Ask the, so ask the question, what is Paul saying here? What is he saying to these slaves that had become Christians? And what can we learn from this? What can we take away from this passage of Scripture? Of course, we recall that the overarching theme of Colossians is Paul's declaration of the glorified risen Christ there in chapter 1, that portrait of the preeminent Christ. And so that portrait should colour everything else throughout the letter. That portrait that really goes to the very core of Paul's uh, preaching and proclamation against these people that have come in and tried to teach uh, that that these Christians needed something else but Christ. And so rather than Paul the apologist, Paul is the preacher in this letter. Paul is simply declaring Christ. He is declaring the glory of Christ, the preeminent of Christ. And he's also been declaring this wonderful hope that we have in Christ. This wonderful new life that we have in Christ. And so... Of course, rather than follow the the arguments of the world, rather than get sucked into religion and aestheticism and rituals and experiences and all these other things which these false, false teachers were trying to teach and trying to take away from these Christians, rather than do that, he simply declares Christ. And really, we see this picture of Christ. It is so important just to remind ourselves This one who is the image of the invisible God. This is the one in whom all things were made. The one in whom all things were made for. And he is the one now that is high and lifted up. And that is where our gaze should be drawn this morning. And so from the outside, this new freedom that that these slaves enjoyed, this freedom in Christ, and of course... The freedom that is in the gospel is never far from from Paul's line of reasoning. It's never far from his heart when writing any of his letters, indeed to declare the liberty and the freedom that these converts now have in Christ. But this freedom, it, it really at first glance looks set to overthrow the social order of things. And in fact, Paul has been heavily criticised uh, by th- in, even in theological circles that he doesn't do enough to criticise slavery in this passage. He doesn't do enough uh, to, to encourage the slaves to break free, to, to extort the masters to free your slaves. That has been one of the biggest criticisms. But in fact, Paul, as we know, he has a singleness of heart and mind on heaven. He has a singleness of heart and mind on Christ. And he knows that, that the world in which we live is a fallen, broken world. And you, you can almost see the, the nervousness on the faces of some of the slave masters when these truths were being uh, declared to them. You know, this sort of, oh, do I have to let all my slaves go or do I have to let all my servants go and I've just paid a pretty penny for them. And, you know, but, but no, he doesn't embark on any of that. He's not seeking some sort of cultural revolution. Uh, he's not casting off the shackles of yesterday for these, for these slaves, for these bond servants. For he knows that Christ has already cast off the true shackles. He knows Christ has already given them true freedom. And that is what he is reminding them of here. That is what he is is encouraging them to remember that 
the authority that is now over them is an is a otherworldly authority. And we saw that last time with the, the way in which the family unit was structured. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. There is a new authority that is now in the life and at the heart of the Christian. And it's the same for the servant. It is the same new authority that we have as we look above, as we see Christ as our King of Kings, as our Lord of Lords. This is so we can live this full Christian life in spite of our circumstances. And indeed, for these slaves, they were circumstances that they had no control over. Let's not get distracted and think that this passage, we can somehow apply it to the employee-employer relationship. Because to do that actually diminishes what Paul is saying. To just simply take it as a, as a glib exhortation to just work hard and do your job well. Of course that is true. Of course that is a principle we can take away from this. We are to do our jobs well. In fact, Christians in the workplace should do their jobs better than anybody. We know that. But let's not miss the the great message that he is saying here, that even in spite of the circumstances that these slaves found themselves in, in spite of the circumstances that they had no control over, and indeed they had no choice in, in spite of that, just remember that you have a God in heaven who has saved you. You have a God in heaven who has given you a new life in Christ. Your life is now hid with Christ in God. And we shall see that in in all of this, you indeed, even you slave, even you bondservant, have been made exceptionally free in Christ. And we'll look at that in more detail. But, you know, this, this whole um, section really, right through this last part of chapter 3, really pivots on verse 17. And whatsoever ye do, do in word or deed, and do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Okay, that's really the, the pivotal verse as we move into this practical application. Okay, so just keep that verse in mind as well. In Genesis... Chapter 1 and verse 28, God blesses his creation. In fact, he blesses mankind. And this blessing is sometimes called the creation mandate. I'm sure you've, you've heard of this. In Genesis 20, 1.28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then following that in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, the Lord goes on to say, And the Lord took, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. So this is God's creation, God's humanity that has been created in his image, and he has, been equip- he has equipped them to live according to that image. He has equipped them to do certain things. And one of those things that he's equipped them to do is actually to exercise dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, and to receive God's provision to work. To work. Okay? And this is, is called the creation mandate, that we are to come alongside and to be God's stewards over his creation to till the ground 
as he intended, to work. And it seems clear that from the, even from the very beginning, God intended human beings to do this. This was, this was one of his great blessings for us before, before the fall. This was one of his great uh, things in which he wanted us to do so that we could be fulfilled, so that we could be blessed. It's not in our nature to uh, be idle. We're not, we're not naturally satisfied with just sitting around doing nothing. So indeed, that is the, the backdrop long before the fall of what work, what it looked like. But of course, in, our, in the passage we've read, which is also dealing with work of a kind, Paul here is addressing, obviously, this relationship of master and slave. And... Like anything in creation's order, when it is changed by man, when it is warped, when it is modified to something that we think is better or best and not what God says, there are terrible, terrible consequences. And that is what we're dealing with and that is what Paul was dealing with. Paul was dealing with this terrible consequence in society and it's always, you know, it's always, slavery is always at somebody else's expense. It is never, it's never something that um, is, is good for the slave, for the person who is, who is actually bonded. And just consider slaves for a moment. You know, they're in Colossae, in, in ancient Rome, you know, not even being counted as human, not even, you know, you were, you were treated like, like cattle, bought and sold on a whim. Um, and man has enslaved man since, really, the, since the fall, since there was a job to do that he didn't want to do. There, this has been in the world. You know, you and I, we can leave our jobs as we choose. We can resign. We can go and pick up somewhere else. We can, you know, it's, it's just, it's so different. We can't even quite comprehend just what it was like for these these early Christian slaves. It's amazing to think that, um, you know, a lot of the focus in our Western civilization of the abolition of slavery is uh, largely around those, those events in the, the early 1800s in the UK. But when you look at the history of slavery in the world, I mean, it, it goes back centuries. It goes back uh, the, the last recorded Oh, sorry, the first, I should say the first recorded, um, what would you call it, a codified charter of human rights was actually implemented against slavery by Cyrus, Cyrus the king in, in Isaiah chapter 45. And he frees, you, you recall, the 50,000 Israelite slaves. And so this um, reformation against slavery has been happening long before uh, anything in our own Western society. And in fact, Cyrus... Uh, he had an extraordinary rule. Uh, he's the only Gentile person to be referred to as anointed in Scripture, which is, again, I don't think a coincidence that he was God's right-hand man at that time. He was anointed by God to do a certain task. He frees these Jewish slaves. And it's an amazing reformation that took place under his rule. But it only took one generation before slavery was back in fashion. And so this, it's, a, it's an incredible 
power, isn't it, that, that can take so many people and put them into servitude, put them into this, this state of bondage. But of course we, as Christians, are different. Because we as Christians, we are now under a different authority. We are not just under our earthly masters. And with this different identity, this different priority, this different relationship, this new attitude to work, of course it brings this new freedom, this new liberty. And so a couple of things, actually three things that the slave is set free from in the text. Firstly, he is, he's actually set free from men-pleasing because of this higher authority. He is set free from merely uh, watching and winning favour with his earthly master. You know, the clock watchers, the, the boss's favourites, the ones that seem to do all the work when the boss is around and then nothing when he's gone. You know, this sort of idea of men-pleasing, it uh, carries uh, right through even from school right through to corporate, corporate life. But no, the, the slave here, he's set free from this because he, he knows now that he is doing everything as unto the Lord. He's doing everything to work for the Lord. He is under the watchful eye of his heavenly father. And in spite of his circumstance, in spite of the trials and the torments that he finds himself in, he can remember that he can do all things for his, earth, for his heavenly father. And, you know, eye service, it can mean work done because the boss's eye is on you, but it can also mean work done because you're trying to get the boss's eye on you. So it actually has this two-fold meaning here, trying to catch the boss's eye. And number two, the slave is also, he's set free to work wholeheartedly. He's not subject to civility, but he has this singleness of heart. He no longer works in a hypocritical fashion, but, and he's not duplicitous in any way, but there is a great sincerity. When I read this passage, my, my thought went to Joseph in Genesis 37, when he was actually sold into slavery by his brothers. And you, uh, we read that account in, in Genesis 37. Uh, I won't read it just for time, but... You know, he, they basically arrive at the fact that, well, you know, let's not kill him, let's make a bit of money, and we don't want his blood on our hands, you know, and, oh, look, here comes some Ishmaelites. Let's, um, yeah, let's see how much they'll give him, they'll give, him, uh, give us for him. And, of course, he gets sold into, into Egypt as a slave. And that, that single event, it's actually remarkable, because that single event of selling one individual into slavery actually brought, hundreds of years later, an entire nation into slavery. And it's just amazing how the hand of God is at work over these, even these small little details, these little matters. Obviously, it wasn't little for Joseph because he was torn from his family and, and his father who loved him dearly. And, but Joseph is just so striking because when he was in that situation, when he was in prison... Now, he really gives the, the great example of somebody who just did what he needed to do and he did it well, in spite of his circumstance. He did not try to run. He did not th- try to take what wasn't his from his master. 
He did not try to revolt in any way. He simply did what was in front of him as best he could. You know, he, he worked as, as best he could in the circumstances that he found himself in. And Paul, and indeed writing uh, to the Christians in Corinth, actually says, Let every man abide in the same calling where it, wherein he was called. Art thou being called a bondservant? Care not for it, he says. Don't worry about it. If you're called as a bondservant, if you're called as a slave, but if thou mayest be made free, rather use it by all means. For he that is called in the Lord, being a bondservant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's bondservant. And ye are bought with a price. And be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man, wherein he is called, therein abide with God. See, there's just such a tremendous liberty in that passage. You know, if you considered yourself at the moment in that circumstance of a slave there in a, in a situation where you really didn't want to be in, you get, you get marvellously saved, you hear the gospel, and then this is taught to you. This is what your new found freedom in Christ actually means. But it says, let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. And that's exactly what Joseph did. He just simply did what he could do in the circumstance that he found himself in. And thirdly, the the slave is set free from work without proper reward. And I I love this this verse because it, it goes on to just reinforce the wonderful inheritance that we have in Christ, which we'll come to. But he's working for the Lord. And there is nothing in the life of the Christian that isn't sacred. The notion that me and you have grown up in and have come accustomed with in the West is that there is this idea of the secular and the sacred, that there is this this sort of dualism in life, that somehow the Christian minister is going about the sacred duties and the guy who's, you know, working as a forklift driver in a shed, in a hot shed, usually, somewhere. You know, he's somehow not, not embarking on anything that is meaningful or spiritual, when actually nothing could be further from the truth, because that is where God has placed you, wherever it is you find yourself. And that is where your testimony is to be most effective, where God has placed you. And just like these slaves that were here in this little town of Colossae, they were in these homes. And yes, maybe some of them were, were blessed enough to have a Christian master, but many of them wouldn't have. And only God knows the conversations that they could have. Only God knows the quiet witness that they could have. And all of a sudden, this person, after they're saved, in that situation, becomes the, the best worker of the lot does his job without complaining, serves their master faithfully. This is the testimony of the Christian in that situation. And it goes on to say, of course, that, and of the Lord you shall receive the inheritance. 
Imagine what this meant for a slave. Imagine what this meant for someone who, indeed, there was no hope of a future. There was, there was no laying up wealth for, for the future generations of their family, if they were lucky enough to, or ble- to even have a family. There was, there was no chance of continuing the family line. There was absolutely zero chance of some sort of cosy retirement. They would be working until they were dead. And yet here, and this is a direct reference to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. This is linking it back to that core passage in chapter 1 where he says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance, the inheritance of the saints in light. Not just a inheritance, not just a little bit for you and a little bit for me. No, we're talking here about something much bigger. It is the inheritance of the saints. And in spite of your circumstances, in spite of where you find yourself in this world, in this life, you have this inheritance that is laid up for you. Our brother quoted it today in his prayer. It is laid up for you. It is there. No one can touch it. It is hidden with Christ in God just as your life is. That is where your inheritance is. So don't worry about being paid fairly in this life. Let God worry about that. Let God be your defender. Let him be the one. As we'll see when we look at the verse on to masters, he'll be the one to repay. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about balancing the scales yourself. You know, and this just gives such a hope, doesn't it? Such a hope for the future. And finally, just over in, in verse 24. Uh, sorry, verse, chapter 1, verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal knowing that ye will receive, knowing that you, you shall also receive from your master in heaven. You have a master in heaven. Okay, Paul actually has a lot more to say to masters than just this single verse. And he did it in a little letter called Philemon. And you recall the story of Philemon and Onesimus. And Onesimus somehow managed to escape or run away, flee from Philemon. And he makes his way to Rome. It's a long journey. He would have been um, basically trying to just live from, from meal to meal. He wouldn't have had any money unless he stole some from his master. But it's a a remarkable story when you consider what this slave had to go through. And then when he got to Rome, somehow he has met Paul in Rome. And, And that's just amazing in itself because Paul was under house arrest. So it wasn't like he just bumped into him at the market. And somehow this man, Onesimus, is converted And he's not only converted, but he becomes such a help to Paul. 
He becomes such an encouragement to the great apostle, this slave, this runaway slave. And then finally, you can imagine the, you know, sitting down, the two of them sort of talking with one another. It's like, well, you know you, have, you know, you have to go back. You know, you've, you, you're to, to demonstrate your conversion is real, you know you have to go back to your master. You know, I can't, I can't say that it's right for you to just stay on the run. And you, you know, I'm not going to cover for you. You have to go back. And so Onesimus obviously agrees. Or maybe it was his idea, we don't know. But Paul gives him this letter and they, Tychicus and him travel back all the way from Rome. And where do they go to? They go to Colossae. They go back to Colossae where Philemon's house is. And here, in this little letter of Philemon, we have this wonderful story that is unfolded of a returned slave. And here is how the master of the slave needs to behave. Just and equal. Gee, I would have, if I was Onesimus, I would have been breathing a sigh of relief when I had that letter in my hands. I don't know, I don't know how he would have gone without the letter. But, you know, here's the Apostle Paul saying, look, anything to his account, you just, you just charge me. Okay? And he gives him this lovely title of a beloved brother. So you have this letter and it's really, it's, it's a very personal letter. It's a very short letter. But it's a letter that emphasises the fact that we are all one in Christ, that we are all one under Christ, under his authority. And it's a letter that emphasises the fact that in spite of where we are on this earthly plane, what we are doing on our day-to-day, that we are all one in Christ. You know, Paul says that, doesn't he, in, in chapter 3, in verse 11 where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. And so this master is to be just. This master is to do that which is fair, do that which is equal. Why? Well, we're back to our main point, because we have a master in heaven. Because the authority that we are now under rests in Christ. Rest in Christ. And because of this higher authority, now we can go about our day. Not as unto men. Not as men pleasers. Not trying to elicit eye service. No, but we can go about our day as working unto the Lord. And you, so, you, so you see here the flow in which Paul has now brought things together to this point of this ordered structure of how the social fabric of, of the Christian community should function, of how it's God-arranged, it's God-ordained. It's not about what we do on a daily basis that matters. It's actually more about who we are. Christ has come to restore these relationships. He has come to make them right again. He has come to to bring fullness to them. For the relationships in the local church 
for the relationships between husband and wife, for the relationships between parents and children, for the relationships even between masters and slaves. He has come to restore and to make right. You know, that's where the real revolution happens. It isn't, it isn't out there in the, in the cultural sphere. It's, it's within. The real revolution happens within the heart when God, through Christ, pours out his spirit upon a soul and regenerates them and brings them into this new life. This regeneration that happens and allows us to be salt and light and makes us to be that city on a hill even in that circumstance that we have no choice over, even when we do not really want to be there. But there is tremendous liberty and there is tremendous contentment in coming and just resting in the fact that I am doing this as unto the Lord. And really that is what we could take away, if nothing else, from this passage, that there is such tremendous blessing to be content that godly contentment wherein is great gain. We're raised with Christ. Our life is hid with Christ in God. We are secured. We are kept safe until that day when he appears. Until that day when the Lord of glory returns. We work as unto the Lord. We do all things for him. In spite of our circumstances. And what does it say? Doing all things as unto the Lord and giving thanks. And we've done that again today. And it's such a blessing, isn't it, to come together to give thanks to the Lord as a group of believers. Shall we just give thanks and commit our way to him? Our Heavenly Father, we bless you that all scripture is given. Father, for our good, for our blessing. And Father, we don't quite relate to the idea of slavery or being slaves or being in bond service. But Father, we just pray that as we've read and and looked at this passage together this day, that we would be lifted up in our service for you and our service for others. Father, that our hearts would be encouraged to remember that we do all things as unto the Lord. Lord, help us and encourage our hearts in in the week ahead. Be with those, Lord, that are perhaps struggling with their circumstances. Let us not be bowed down, but let us look up. Let us remember that we have a great high priest, Father, who has been touched with our weaknesses and the feeling of our infirmities. Father, let us remember that Christ is the one who has gone through and he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And let us labour, for the day is far spent and we know that he is coming again soon. Let our hearts be lifted up And waiting for that day when we will see the King of glory come in. And Lord, we pray that this might be our portion. That whatsoever place you have planted us, there we will serve you well. There we will serve you with joy. There we will serve you with thanksgiving. 
so that we can bring blessing to others and glory to your name. We humbly ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.